everybody. Thank you for joining us. I'm not really sure what episode this is um, because we kind of just switched our 24. gaming convention. Okay, 24. Um, <laughs> I am Johnny. Our other host here, Jared, is here as well. Um, and with us today is uh, Jamie Williams. Jamie, for those that um, aren't familiar with you, besides the fact that you have very fashionable shoes and boots, um, can you please <laughs> ex explain yourself a little bit? Oh, yeah. It's kind of, you know, it's tough riding the coattail of your own shoes. But uh, yeah, Jamie Williams, uh, come from an Intel offensive background, doing some squirrely government stuff. And the last four, wow, four and a half years by now, I've uh, been over at the MITRE Corporation doing, you know, attack, attack evaluations, a lot of, you know, started off red teaming, adversary emulation, now this beautiful thing we call purple teaming. So, you know, honored to be here and, you know, fire away. Happy to help uh, clarify. I know we've had some spicy takes on uh, evals oh, and that ecosystem recently. So, you know, here to do what I can to help uh, provide some clarity. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I know like a huge topic right now on Twitter um, is the EDR evals. And I know you guys kind of like expose those evals for people. We definitely want to talk about that. Um, so can you kind of like walk through maybe the initial um, thought process of like how the EDR eval came about and then also why all these EDRs are testing at 100%. So ironically, <laughs> it started with the 100% problem where before we were doing any testing, we would just kind of watch. Like, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, vain in the sense of like, we see the word attack and we're like, yeah, I'll read it. Like talking about our thing. Let's just go see what they're talking about. And we realized there was a lot of, you know, public content saying, you know, this does, you know, 100% coverage of attack or this has a hundred percent coverage of this technique. So we really wanted to say, you know, challenge like, Hey, you know, what does that look like? You know, let's actually start cutting through that and maybe providing some more clarity because obviously, you know, as we know, a hundred percent of anything isn't real a reality. Um, so over time we realized, you know, let's combine a couple of things I mentioned, like, you know, actual assessments, putting, you know, you know, actually metal down and measurement, um, and, you know, starting with EDR, like let's do host based, you know, run some scenarios we put together from like a red team CTI perspective, figure out like, you know, what do people actually care about in terms of techniques and behaviors and scenarios, run those by these vendors and then start to measure, you know, you know, are there lessons learned? Are there improvements or things we can take away from that process? I think in exactly as you said, in that process, we kind of almost circled back towards almost the same problem of exactly as you said, depending on how you interpret the output of that, you know, some people could say 100% this, 100% that. And I think that's really the, the nucleus of the problem we're at now is how do we ask the right questions and how do we analyze, you know, these hard topics like detection and visibility and alerting? How do we actually, what metrics matter? And is that something that we can talk about at a universal scale or is that like a, a unique to you kind of problem? So it's it's definitely in the spirit of MITRE. It's definitely something that we are trying to be transparent about. We're trying to be open about, but we're also taking a very research perspective in the sense of it's not going to be perfect. Uh, yeah. We know we're not going to do anything right. Um, so we're kind of open and receptive to any feedback as long as it's kind of pushing us towards a better next iteration. Yeah, I think I think that's a really one thing that really stuck out to me there was you talked about like it's not perfect. And I think that's an unrealistic expectation by maybe some of the consumers of the EDR evals. It's like that the process is going to be 100% perfect and it's going to tell me which EDR I'm going to buy at the end of this, which I look at the evaluations and I don't necessarily even think that the purpose of the evaluation is to necessarily 
compare each EDR and tell me which one I should buy. I just think as these things kind of come to existence, it's human nature to start compare and make a competitive nature out of it. Mm -hmm. And then once we start doing that, we then go back. It's like, well, why isn't the process perfect? Why isn't the competition perfect? And it's like, well, maybe you are conflating what the like original scope was for this evaluation. Exactly. And like I said, we, we going into this, we never, we, we will hundred percent will tell you, we never meant to rank. We never meant to score. The really objective was to understand and improve. But to your point, I think we're even touching on like a bigger problem in terms of just general users, of anything in cyber where we want, you know, EDR to be this thing we can buy, throw into a bucket and just solve our things and like, oh, I don't think about it anymore because I have EDR. And I think that's one of the things we've really uncovered and are trying to share in these results where, you know, you go and look at this data and, you know, it's going to show things that these products do really well in terms of certain sensors, certain types of data, the way they're able to aggregate it, the way we will show a user. That's not everything you need. Um, there's going to be a lot of things you deal with that are just not going to be a good fit, especially for a host-based EDR, even if it has some type of network caps and things like that. There's just, you know, you're, you got some cloud assets, you have some, you know, active directory stuff. It might not have any type of jurisdiction there. But I think exactly to your point, that's a hard problem that if you understand, you get it. But the people, and there was a really great, I wish I knew uh, who wrote it. I should probably give him credit, but um, you know, I'll throw it over to Luke and we'll put it up on the screen, uh, magical screen here. But um, that's a hard problem to communicate to the uninitiated. And unfortunately, the people, there's a gap between the people who know this problem space really well and are kind of exactly you said, know that there's no perfect 100% solution and the people that make those decisions. So whatever we can do to kind of bridge that gap and push that knowledge over, I think we're all, we're here for it. It's just, I think it's going to be a collective community, you know, effort to, you know, make that a reality. Yeah, I think there's a, there's an interesting thing. So like, um, I, this whole thing, so you released, MITRE released the results and like within, you know, 15 minutes, it seemed like every EDR had interpreted the results in a way that was most favorable to them. And then that created kind of this backlash and there was, there was this interesting kind of juxtaposition of, hey, this is, this is like, as you mentioned, like the having 100% coverage is obviously not true because it's impossible. So like, that's the first presupposition. But then it was like MITRE should take like one of the takes that I saw was MITRE should take the responsibility and produce a score such so that this can't happen. And like, I think that that's really difficult because uh, we tend to view like, so I don't know if Gartner is who builds these categories, but let's say Gartner, somebody builds the category of EDR, right? And then there's the problem is, is that there's a range of capability within the EDR space to where they they're servicing different needs for different different uh, subdivisions of customers or sub subcategories of customers, right? So there there is a subset of customers, let's say really small companies that don't have a huge investment in personnel on the uh, on the detection response side that they're looking for something that they could literally just plug in and get some benefit from. And that's like almost like IDS, IPS, or like uh, AV++, right? And there's a, there's a subset of EDR vendors who have selected that as their target demographic, right? So they, they're saying, hey, we're going to kind of make ourselves most efficient for that use case. And that, that has a cost, right? Because they can't do everything. It's just impossible, right? So they're, they're going to like, make their their product align with that use case. Then there's somebody like what I would consider myself to be is like 
hey, you know, it's great that you do some stuff out of the box and I appreciate that. And that probably makes my life a little bit easier, but I don't trust that you're doing it very well. And so I'm go- I am I want to, you know, have tr- some transparency to how you're doing things. I want to have raw telemetry. I want to have the ability to extend the rule set in the way that I see fit. Um, and there's a completely different subset of EDR products that are going to provide that to me, right? And so what I think is better than you just saying this is the best, like, I don't think that you could say that because there's too many different dimensions of analysis that you could apply. But you can't, like, wh- rather than you saying this is the best EDR, uh, I think that's irresponsible and not not practical. But uh, you you could say, here are the different things, different dimensions on which upon which we've analyzed EDR performance. And it's on you, the consumer, like the consumers have to take some amount of responsibility. You shouldn't like if you're I've been using this quote like 47,000 times recently, but Warren Buffett says, don't ask a barber if you need a haircut. Like if you're a consumer looking to buy an EDR, the person that you shouldn't ask whether or not you should buy their EDR is the EDR vendor, right? Like they're, of course, they're, they have an incentive to not tell you the full truth. And so um, and so what you should do is you should go into that critically and say, what, like, how, how am I actually going to use this? Not necessarily how do I think I should use this, but how will I actually use this? And sometimes that, that requires some hard truths, you know, because a lot of people uh, understand that just plugging in and, and leaving it isn't ideal, uh, but that might be what you're going to do, right? And so, like, just be honest with it. And then exactly. And like, like you said, if you trust some even MITRE, you know, MITRE does a history sure. of doing, you know, CVE and all these other frameworks that people really yep. like and just kind of being unbiased. If you trust MITRE or some random, you know, person on the internet to tell you how to cyber, like you're probably going to have a bad time. This is not yep. going to be you know, a good, a good, a good path uh, towards correct. tomorrow. But exactly to your point, um, that is why we avoided. Ex- actually, you, you covered a lot of the philosophy of evals is we're not just creating, you know, something you can parse and kind of read and kind of like, oh, create little like Python scripts that make a little picture or graph or whatever you want to do. Um, if you go to the results there's the thing we spend the most time on is pictures. Like we really put, we did the best we could to kind of put you in the chair of I'm a user of this product. Here's, I understand the scenario. It's wizard spider. It's sandworm. It's AP 29, whatever. Um, I understand the criteria going into it. I know it was executed. I know what MITRE was looking for. Here's the relevant pictures. Cause exactly to your point, some of these products are going to look like a dashboard and it's like lights, green lights, red, tells you what to do, context, you know, don't worry about it. We handled it. Some of them, if you look at the pictures, are going to be, and this is probably more up your vein, like these gnarly queries where during the evaluation, the staff was there, they're writing these like joins and all this, like hooking a bunch of data together and then showing like almost the same detection, but from a different process. Yep. So like being able to exactly, you said, sit in that chair and really like consume that and make that informed decision of like, okay, I like this better. Um, that is really, to me, much better than just like a, here's our, here's my favorite one. You know, it, I don't, I don't know who you are. Good luck with this. Um, and I think that's, that's, that's one of those things that also it's like, it's hard to capture that and communicate that. Cause even if you look at something, I know like, you know, vendor on vendor crime is a big thing. And like, one of the things that very often comes up is like config changes. Like we let, it's a purple team. Vendors know what we did. We tell them there's no secrets. And then they're given an opportunity to like alter their config and redetect it, which some people are like, oh, that's cheating. Like, oh, that's bad. I actually personally like it for exactly a reason. It shows flexibility. It's exactly like if I saw something and I saw a true positive and I wanted to detect that, like in these cases, vendors had basically 12-ish hours 
to, yeah. to implement config changes. And it's like, yeah, they were able to pull it off. Look at that. They either added a new sensor, they added a new logic. You could do that as a customer. But most importantly, what they did during this test is now available for you as a customer. That's something we hold the vendors towards is like these changes, even if they were artificial part of an experiment, we, you know, mandate mm. that this is something that, you know, if I see it on the website, I can go do as a user. I think, uh, so I don't think it's cheating. I think anybody that like, that's a really low resolution way to look at it. In my opinion, yeah. I think it's important though, to distinguish between something that worked out of the box and something that worked after configuration changes. Like that's an important exactly. distinction that allows me like, cause I'm, I'm personally more interested in what you could do, what could be done, yeah. not what is done. Uh, but other people might be more interested in what could be done now, or what, what is done. I mean, it's only now, cheating like, if you thought this was a competition. Yeah, 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 for sure. I think one thing that I just wanted to touch on was you mentioned like don't necessarily trust MITRE. At least like I think trusting MITRE, well, not perfect. In, in general, you should come up with your own thing and you should do the work yourself, right? Because you trust yourself better than everybody else. But at least MITRE is like, I think you are actually almost legally uh, not biased towards, like you're, you're legally not biased, right? And so it's because uh, you're an FFRDC I think is the proper acronym, right? And that's like we there's... operate FFRDCs, but yeah, exactly. Oh, okay, we don't enough. have okay. public, you know, no equities and any of this stuff. We're just here, exactly. You said we're not perfect. I don't know your situation. More than happy to talk about it if you want. But that said, um, I think that's one of the big philosophies that we, you know, attack, shield, engage, yep. and all these frameworks. It's more here's our take on the bigger perspective of the problem. I'll tell you how I got to that conclusion. Yeah. It's your job now to take that and run with it because I don't know you. Um, yeah, I can well, just get you in the right headspace of asking the right questions and maybe finding your own answers. Yeah, I think like one one thing to touch on too is like a lot of consumers, I feel like, think that one size fits all. So like one organization's problem is probably another organization's problem. Hence, their solution is going to be my solution. And because you're dealing, when I say you, MITRE is dealing with all these different EDRs and they're trying to help build these other EDRs up, it might be... Uh, like a conflated idea that maybe MITRE should have all the answers and expose all those answers to the public. Well, like those, your problems are going to be different. So it's like, I always tell people this, like we had a really good conversation once about like, um, like releasing detections, right? Um, one, I think one podcast was either last one or the time before, maybe time before that. And like, one thing with that is like, not one detection is going to fit all the organizations. You have to fine tune it. You have to like, take this thing and kind of like baby it to your environment. The same applies here, right? Especially when it comes to like EDRs. I think that's one thing the evaluation does as well is it not only shows like maybe strengths and weaknesses with the EDRs, it also like pushes the EDRs to maybe better their process and expose that to their consumers um, particularly. But also it's like, hey, if like you are an organization that likes this type of data, like this EDR kind of has this type of data where this other one might not, right? And I think that is yeah. a, a big piece of it. Exactly. And like I said, when we we do, we've been doing these evals for about four years. Um, our selection of adversary and scenario is like very, like it, it's it's actually kind of embarrassing how long we spend like arguing and like debating about what we should do. And like, there's a little bit of like a unwritten like maturity model there where like you go back like four years ago, we did APT3 for a lot of reasons. There was a lot of, you know, um, intel around it already, but it was mostly like the theme of that round was like, can vendors tag things with context? Like mm -hmm. starting with like basically a lot of process monitoring. Like if you see, you know, net use or something like that, can you tell me what that is? 
you know, in kind of the love language of attack. And since then, we've been kind of like, you know, taking that same approach of like, hey, let's do another round of this. What is a problem that we see that we kind of want to try to solve? So like the second round was like ABT29. It's like, hey, how many of these vendors? We see a lot of PowerShell tradecraft. What does that actually look like? Like, I can't tell you the best way to do it. I'm not going to prescribe these vendors. You know, this yeah. is the best way to, you know, 4104s or ETW, whatever you want to do. I don't care. I just want to ask, what are you guys doing about PowerShell? What is the industry, collective industry space? So we saw some really interesting things where some vendors were very robust. Other ones, you know, completely honestly, they had to do a config change to even get that data, which I was like, exactly to your point, that was a huge win. It was like, hey, like yeah. if you've never had that signal up to now, that is a, the fact that that's available in your product is going to be amazing going forward because mm, you were, precisely. you know, missing out on a lot. And I think over time we've like kind of um, kept that up. So that's a, I mean, another great call to action is we're always looking for the right question to ask. Yeah. So if like, you know, other organizations are seeing things or like, it'd be amazing if like you can incorporate this or that, or, you know, we recently started doing a little bit more and more Linux. Um, all that feedback you're, I mean, it, you know, the MITRE corporation sounds terribly like, you know, kind of corporate and like, oh, this big, like government isk entity. Yeah. Like we're just a bunch of, you know, nerds and researchers who are doing like exactly the same thing as everything else. So like you might have to go through some kind of weird, like, you know, big MITRE-esque like website, but you'll read it. Like we take these things to heart. So we're all ears and like, you know, for better or worse, uh, keep the feedback coming. Yeah, one thing I, I like I really like um, is like the positive um, kind of attitude when it comes to this. And what I mean by that is like if you were to look at like some random company or some random person, um, if they were like doing a test to all these EDRs, I, I can't help but think that the majority of them be like, I'm going to try to shit on this EDR as much as possible and then release this thing to talk about how shitty they are. But like with... Um, and, you know, thank goodness, like, this podcast can be explicit because these are the times I was telling you I just, like, accidentally cussed. But, yeah, so, like, um, one thing I can tell that MITRE does differently is it's more about, like, trying to evolve these EDRs and trying to help improve them um, so that the end consumer starts to have better data at the end of the day. And that's kind of one thing that I've been seeing with this as well is, like, hey, you didn't have this data before. Like, we'll retest, like, do new config, great. Now we're going to make sure that you still, like, you actually do have this data for your consumers. And that's huge because as, the more we can evolve um, as a community and things like that, I think it's only going to be better for companies. Exactly. And like I said, if we had the answer on the best approach, we would have, like, baked that into, like, like you said before, a score and saying, like, how yeah. well are people doing what we think is better? But like you said, I think that's one of the, in general, in like assessment strategy and philosophy and kind of, you know, principles is mm -hmm. like you said, rather than, you know, bash or shame, it's really understand like the philosophy of like, what is, what, what goes into your tool? How do you think about like big terms, like coverage and priority and things like that? I don't know how, I don't know your customers. I don't know everything that led up to this product that we're looking at today. I don't know what they've asked for in the past and what you're asking for in the future. So I'm not going to speculate on any of that. We just want to provide transparency on how it applies to problems that we think are important. Um, so I, I, all of that just kind of spirals. And, you know, definitely we're not dumb to the idea that the data set is a little bit unwieldy. Um, over years, we, you know, it's a huge data set. And I think it's a, there's a little bit of a learning curve getting in. Um, so we're definitely, you know, been trying to chip away in terms of how do we get people 
to not only look at our data and have more informed opinions, but in general, exactly as you said, like how do, what other data sets kind of, you know, marry into this understanding and what does the full process look like? Cause you know, we're not going to sit here even, you know, like, like you just said, we're not going to sit here and say like, this is all you need. Um, you can make informed decisions based on our process. There's like so much before and after. So really, I think one of the big things I've taken to heart in the last couple of weeks is us being able to kind of paint that bigger picture and kind of in exactly like those cheesy like maps in the mall, like put that little stamp and like you are here and here's everything that, you know, here's everything you hopefully have figured out up to this point. Maybe look at our data and figure out like top five. Like these are the products that for these reasons, X, Y, Z kind of match what I'm doing and what I need. And then next steps getting from five to one to maybe even zero looks like this. Um, I don't know if we collectively have those answers yet, but it's exciting to see kind of more of that materialize and maybe it'll be a little bit more tangible. I One of the things that I was kind of working through is if I'm the consumer, what are what are some of the thing? What are some of the things that I would want for you to illuminate for me? What are some of the like dimensions of analysis that I that I'm interested in? Um, and kind of what I came up with is uh, this is from Jared's perspective: raw tele- raw telemetry availability. So there's like a subset of vendors that don't even make the telemetry available for you at all, which you know that that's a that's a big problem from my perspective. Uh, but maybe it doesn't matter to everybody, right? And that's the key is none, none of these are universally important necessarily, right? It's all about how you plan to use it. Um, built-in data store. So there's uh, certain vendors like, okay, well, Sysmon's not a vendor, but let's say that it is pseudo EDR, we'll say. Like uh, somebody even asked me on Twitter, it's like, well, like based on the thing that you're saying of like telemetry availability, telemetry coverage or visibility, uh, Sysmon would be the best, uh, best EDR out there because it it just gives you raw data. And it's like, well, maybe that's not actually true, but conceptually it could be true. Um, the problem is, is that while I'm saying telemetry availability is important, it's not the only feature that I care about from an EDR, right? That's actually like, there, there are numerous things that come together to make something useful. And so uh, having the ability to like store the data in a way that allows me to search it. Maybe like one thing that Johnny might be interested in is like the query language that, uh, that the product facilitates. So like what types of questions can I ask? Because uh, for instance, if if you depend on Splunk as a backend, you can technically ask different a different subset of questions than if you depend on uh, like Kusto, like Microsoft's Kusto language um, as as your backend query language. And so those those that matters, right? The types of questions that I want to ask and what language facilitates that. Um, the ability to ex- uh, extend analytics. So like, am I stuck with what you have? And then if I want to create custom detections, I need to like have my own, you know, uh, home home cooked, you know, solution or is like, do you have the ability for me to extend the, the analytics? And then like, how, how much freedom in extending those analytics do I have? So some vendors uh, have like extensibility capability, but they only let you search across a subset of uh, fields, let's say. Um, the ability to facilitate investigation. So I have an alert. So there's a d- distinction between detection and investigation. I have an alert and now I want to look into it. How like easy is it for me to gather all the information that I need? And then maybe the ability to perform response actions. That's just like some that come to my come to my head immediately. But like I think the first question is, is what are the things that we should be 
evaluating uh, EDRs on. And then the question, then like from there, a much harder question is how do we actually do that in a way that's as accurate as possible? And, and that's, that's a beautiful question and just kind of thought process because I know we've tried to document this in the past is for the exact same reason we don't rank and score, you cannot just look at evals data and come to a complete decision. Cause you know, even like you said, there's so many factors um, in that space where I would say like we don't have the time and resources to evaluate that and index that fairly. But honestly, a lot of the questions you just asked, I would say my response would be read the docs. Like all those vendors document a lot of that. You know, yep. you can even do that up front. And even yep. after the evaluation, you know, my advice would be sit down and try these products. Like you can get a demo or you can actually feel it and kind of validate like does this where you're like, you know, pre, you know, biased understanding of this product, does it actually meet like metal and the kind of match what you expected? Um, but also that's like my favorite thing about, you know, to your question about like, what should we evaluate? My favorite thing about research is anytime you read like a white paper or like any type of IEEE, whatever, write up, whatever, the second section is like previous work, background, history. So like typically as a researcher, you're like, I'm looking to do things that I know aren't available and aren't already like something that a, you know, a user mm, or okay. a, an answer we don't already have. And I think to my bigger point was like, that's where evaluations is trying to like really target is like, what do we like, what do we not know? And like, okay. we know we can read the docs, we can like figure out a lot of that stuff. We, people can do demos for themselves. The gap and the kind of that bridge is like, you know, really starting to, you know, take marketing, run it through a filter and say, you know, XYZ vendor says this, I can go to a data set without ever doing anything completely free and kind of do a quick sample of like their claim of XYZ. These folks at MITRE kind of poked at that a little bit. What does it really look like? And is it something that I should further investigate? Or is like, okay, yeah. I can kind of like debunk and like, eh, that's an interesting take on, let, you know. Let, uh, okay, so I like that answer. That's a, that's actually a really good answer um, that I hadn't considered. But uh, okay, so let me kind of like expand on that. Because like, I think, I think the implication is that like, for instance, the telemetry, the raw telemetry that's available should be documented somewhere, right? And so like, I think of, I'm going to pick names. You don't have to, you don't have to pick names, but I'm just going to talk about things that I, I know for a fact. Right. So, um, and I'm not, I'm not casting judgment one way or another, whether one's better or not, because it, it depends is the answer actually. Um, carbon black, for instance, I know for a fact that they have documentation on the events, the raw events that they collect and what the fields are. And they, they document them. CrowdStrike does as well. I know, I know those, uh, actually, Defender ATP does as well. And those are probably the three that I'm most familiar with, I would say. And so those are the ones that I'm super comfortable talking about. One of the problems that I've run into specifically with Defender ATP, although I imagine it's, it's, uh, it happens elsewhere, is that Defender ATP will say something like, we collect network connections. And it's like, okay, cool. And then what happens is you go, you get an alert from some other Microsoft product like uh, MCAS or whatever it's called nowadays, uh, Cloud App Application Security. And then you want to go back and like investigate, investigate that alert and a relevant network connection is not, is there's no event for it. And so you might ask the question of like, okay, well, what happened to that event? And what they'll say is that there's actually like a machine learning algorithm in the agent. So the agent collects the information and then it does some magical thing that like we have no insight into and decides what gets forwarded on. And so uh, that matters when I'm doing investigation, but it also matters when I'm doing a detection because my detection is on what was forwarded, not what was observed, if that makes sense. And so it's, um, I understand that the idea is like somebody says they detect credential dumping, like obviously there's some, uh, 
room for interpretation there, right? And like we could figure that out. But there's also, I think, room for interpretation between the categories of things that they collect and the the uh, the overall coverage of that category um, that may be interesting. I like so not saying not that only, it's something that you breadth, have to care about, but not it, only breadth but depth as well. I think is, exactly. is that what you're kind of getting at. Yeah, and that's some of the maturity we've done over time. Where from the very beginning with the results, we tried to filter out obviously false positives but really be critical of, you know, for something for us to kind of give a category of like, this is a detection, it needs to meet a certain threshold. So if you go to the results, we actually outline like our criteria for, you know, this sub-step or this procedure is X, Y, Z. Um, one of the interesting evolutions we've done over time is tagging those with data sources. Because exactly as you said, like, yeah. you know, arbitrary technique, like doing registry run key persistence. You know, you could detect that from the, you know, process command line arguments. You could see the registry change. You could also probably go and show the value sitting in the registry. There's a bunch of different ways you could go about that. And they're all going to be different. And they're all going to be susceptible to that different, like, brittleness that you mentioned. And, like, you know, there's pros and cons of each approach. So, again, like, we're not going to tell you this is mm. the only way or the best way to do it. Rather than just kind of showing like, you know, every vendor has thought about that problem in some sense or their capability has some, you know, detection in that space. What does they what do they look like? And the other the other interesting one, this is a spicy one. I know the, the vendors who may be listening to this later, uh, they'll strike a hair, unfortunately. But <laughs> C2 is another big one where, you know, we what does it really like something like application layer protocol, like what does detection of that really look like? Mm. Is it a network socket with like, you know, port 80? And I'm like, oh, that's HTTP. Or is it like, you know, that socket with like a win HTTP mod load? Or is it like headers and things that are actually like definitive? Wow, that's actually, I see the protocol. So we try to do the best we can to define that criteria ahead of time and document it so that like you going in can kind of see that. But I think that's one of those things where exactly you said, it's, it's, in the eyes of the holder, where as an organization, do I thrive exclusively on network data? Um, the value and the, you know, the different interpretation results is going to be very skewed versus like, hey, like, you know, I'm doing host-based stuff. I don't, network is another team. EDR is in my budget. Um, I don't really care if it does, yeah. you know, network sensing, anything like that. Um, other big point here is um, just mentioned the, the, the big money word. That's something we will never be able to evaluate in terms of you know cost and you know not just telemetry availability actual availability of the product and that's actually one of my favorite things about evaluations is you know you named your top 3 that you're familiar with some of the vendors we don't limit you know yeah. valuation opportunity to just those vendors it's like anyone who signs up and you know is willing to kind of you know invest into the time and commitment they're available so you know one of my favorite things about evaluations is we're dealing with some companies that are you know, only serving a certain region of the world. And like, they'll probably never be able to compete, you know, unfortunately at a global scale. And that's not their goal. They have a yep. very specific customer base. So they're not really in this for the competition sake or for world domination or to build a monopoly. Um, they're just here to get better for, you know, that corner pocket, you know, their thousands and maybe millions of users. Um, but that's, you know, that's a good thing. Like, let's, I don't, they don't care where they show up in the graph. They don't they care could. where they show up in the rankings. They're just here to get better. They could be technically better, actually, because one of the problems with being a monopoly is you have to address the median, right, or the average. Um, and so, like, I think of one company like that. Uh, I know some guys from Microsoft started 
that their their like technical capability is probably superior to almost all the big vendors, but they just don't make it. Uh, I think that they may maybe haven't made it to where it's super consumable by like the average average company. And so, yeah. but like for me, that's I mean that's great. Like I could figure that part out. But like you know, um, yeah. and so that gives me more power than what I'd be able to get with maybe one of the leading leading exactly. type of people. And yeah. we're one only evaluating I- the tech side of it. So like there's so many other factors like configuration, the day to day, like what is the can my staff e- even use this? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just it's a whole it's a whole nightmare of like considerations. And I, I think it's it's kind of advantageous for anyone just to respect like the full like spectrum of how big this problem is and how big that the gravity behind that decision. Yeah. One thing I kind of want to touch on is like how does the EDR evals kind of like approach breadth versus depth of coverage when it comes to maybe DRs. And the reason why I ask is because like, I don't necessarily, this, this thought process isn't necessarily thought out hundred percent. I was talking to Jared about this the other day. Um, but essentially like in my head, like, so Jared recently released that like service creation kind of graph on, um, Twitter. And for those who don't know that kind of, if you ever heard of like the abstraction maps, it's like a different way to view those as well. And so we had this conversation of like, what techniques are worthy enough of that level of analysis? Because maybe not all techniques need to be have that deep analysis done. And like, then we kind of got in this conversation where it's like, are some techniques, quote unquote, I use the word complex. I don't really think that's the right terminology. But regardless, like, I'm curious how that approach was done, because obviously, there's probably like, I don't know, let's say like 10, if not more ways to process inject, right? So how do you do that breadth versus like, okay, we just want to touch on process injection and then move on and then like maybe dumping LSAS, right? There's so many different ways to do that where something maybe like MSI exec is a little bit more or MS bills might be a little bit more basic. Right. And so like moving forward through those kind of um, coverage techniques. It's a multi, I guess, faceted kind of approach to that. Um, One of first part is like, we know we've previously done. We look, whenever we pick a scenario, we like look back and we're like, okay, like, you know, round one was a lot of process monitoring, just typical CMD waxy stuff. Two was AP, you know, APD29, a lot of PowerShell. Three was a lot of custom stuff, you know, interesting C2 channels. So we obviously look back and say like, you know, where have we not touched? Um, Where are some opportunities for us to start? Like, you know, there's an infinite universe of procedures we can start touching where it's probably the most prioritized. Um, but that said, you know, one of the biggest philosophies of, you know, attack itself is rather than just finding like those interesting behaviors and like, you know, oh, the end of a kill chain or like you know, kind of those uh, end of a campaign behaviors, really there's a lot of opportunity across the entire matrix to do a lot of good. So our, our approach is like, let's let CTI lead the way and say, you know, in this scenario, the scenario isn't just, you know, data encrypted for impact. It's not just exfiltration and collection of data. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff that led up to that point, you know, discovery, lateral movement. Um, you mentioned like credential access, all that's in play. So let's, you know, let's fully explore the breadth of everything that goes into a campaign yeah. and not expect that, um, you know, that that's one of my biggest beefs with like scores is when you do that like quick summary of like, you know, we we detected 108 out of 109 or 109 out of 109, you're really flattening the prioritization of techniques. And you're assuming that I care about discovery as much as I care about, you know, credential access or OS credential dumping or pick your favorite technique. Um, so that's one of those things where when we're building out the methodology, we look past, but even when we're building out the plan, we look at it in itself. So like, even if you go to this previous round, 
there's some instances where we ran CMD waxy command. And like you might say, like complexity there, pretty low, like, you know, process monitoring, you know, pretty straightforward. And there's a couple instances where we loaded NTDLL into like an existing process and ran some like, you know, just native API calls. So, you know, and that's one of those things where it's, I wish we could, like you said, index that and say like, you know, this is a nine out of 10, this is a one out of 10, but that's another one of those like very touchy, like it depends on who you are and what you care about. Cause some of those techniques, honestly, I could probably go through evaluation results and say, if I was a SOC manager, I wouldn't care about this, 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 and this. It's interesting, not on my like prioritized list. Like here's the places I really care about. And I'm interested in just looking at like what vendors did on these places. Yep. Once I solve those, I'll take like round B or group B in terms of prioritization. Um, so that's one of those things I think, unfortunately, we, I don't have, we've communicated it and I don't think it's something that we can, you know, fully like yell from the hilltops. But that said, I think we've done at least as much as we can at this point to hopefully make it, if you are asking those questions, it's, you can find your answers in the data. I think the biggest one is like data sources where, you know, we have pages on the site where you can go and find your favorite procedure in an evaluation. Show me every vendor, what they did on this particular thing. And all of that's can be tagged with data sources. You're like, okay, you're comparing process monitoring versus, you know, file monitoring versus registry monitoring. Or in some cases, we didn't limit it to a one-to-one. So some vendors, you know, part of their vendor magic is pulling in a bunch of different data sources and pulling that to your face and saying, you know, rather than you, you know, Jared going out and like, you know, understanding, I need a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They've already done that for you. Um, So you can kind of just appreciate, hey, like, look how many data sources went into this one detection. And it's not even just at that point in time, maybe they aggregated things over time and said, okay, we saw the same process, download a file, make a network connection later, and then do this. Here's this really interesting detection based on that. Um, So appreciating those, but also fun fact is during this process, we actually sometimes create those because, you know, one of my, you know, I keep saying my favorite things about evals, apparently I like it a lot. Um, Favorite things about evals is a lot of times how often, you know, you know, I think all of us have created tools. How often have you really sat down and used your own tool and saw and felt what it like actually is like, like whether that's a UI, especially in the context of EDR whether that's a UI-ism where they're like, you know, they've seen their product for their, you know, the first time they're like, oh crap, like that doesn't make sense the way we render this data. Or, you know, we bring our criteria and say, hey, we're looking for ingress tool transfer, which is a combination of a network connection, a file creation, and maybe something else. And they're like, okay, cool. Like we have all that data. We've never stitched it together. Config change better tomorrow for our customers. Okay, Johnny has something spicy, but you just reminded me of something before we go into that. I don't know what the spicy thing is, but um, it, that reminds me, of, I was working with a company where they had a SOC and they had threat hunters and there was a, as typical, a somewhat adversarial relationship between the SOC and threat hunters. And the way that they were using the threat hunters or uh, was to like one of the ways was to generate new detections. Um, and then, the, but the threat hunter was kind of complaining that the SOC uh, I was talking to the threat hunter about what they do, and uh, I was aware that there was an adversarial relationship. And so I was talking to them uh, about their stuff, and they were, they were lamenting the fact that the SOC doesn't seem to know what to do with their detection. And so um, there's two two ways to interpret that potentially. One is the SOC doesn't know what they're doing, or the other way is that maybe your detection is not that great. And I've I've started to learn that you should blame yourself before you blame somebody else. I, I have a natural tendency to blame other people, but it's it's valuable to start blaming yourself first. So uh, then I was like, okay, well, let's look at this. 
And then like we looked, we pulled up an alert and I said, okay, well, based on what I know that this alert was created for, I might want to know this detail. Like what was the port that was used or whatever? And uh, can you provide that information to me? And the, the person was clicking around for like five minutes. And I was like, see, you're the person that created the alert and you can't even answer a simple question. But then you expect somebody who had nothing to do with the creation of this alert to be able to use it properly. And I think that goes to your point of like the vendors sometimes don't even use their own stuff. Or it's hard to separate yourself from like what you already know and put yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? So it's like yeah. there's there's a lot of stuff you bring with you when you're the person who work work through building it in the first place. Exactly. And that's that's part of the fun of our process is we know the scenario we executed. Like we know it like the back of our hand, we built slides, we walked them through it from purple team perspective. But part of our pro like our results analysis is like turn your brain off pretend i have no idea what's going on and just look at the images from the vendor and like what does it does it actually say like how, how does it align does it actually detect and kind of communicate all the information to the user because at the end of the day you know a lot of edr besides the automated stuff is really that's the goal is like yep. put this in someone's hands and someone's mind so they can act on it so exactly to your point that's like some of the fun we do is you know looking at a picture and say you know the vendor says like oh it says this is this and it's like does it really like you know I, I read everything in front of me. I understand under the hood what the logic is and like what the motivation for this UI was. It doesn't communicate it as well as you think it does. So, you know, let's make a config change or let's pull in some other thing to really like round this out. Because really, at the end of the day, we're just trying to tell a story and really hope that that story just doesn't end with like an alert and a queue that no one looks at. But like, you know, some type of response, remediation, you know, whatever we're going to do about it. So I, I have like one spicy thing, but before the spicy thing, oh man, um, you got us on our tippy toes over here. What? Yeah, yeah, I have a basic <laughs> question, and I, it's like this could just be like a yes or no. It's no big deal, but I'm curious. Um, one thing that's going through my head is is the standard standardization of the EDR's data measured at all within the eval? So like, if that raw telemetry is exposed to a customer, like how much of their data is actually standardized and usable by that consumer? not just like their basic um, third party, I want to say basic, let's just say third party alerting. Yeah, not um, not indexed explicitly, but one of our criteria for anything to be included as a detection is it has to be visible within their UI. So it can't just be like some log file that was on okay. like on agent, like the, you know, the agent on host is dropping a bunch of stuff into like a JSON file and like they can pull that up. Like, sure, that's a really interesting feature. Um, but in terms of like what we take, it has to be like something that would have been available from like a typical ga like dashboard or view. So in terms of, I think you're talking more about like the actual standardization of like formats and fields and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that's one of those things. I would love to touch on that. I think that's a whole beast in itself. In its own. Yeah, I assume yeah. it wasn't in there. I was just curious if that was at all a consideration within that. So. No, I, I think that that would be a really interesting thing. The other thing too is like, you know, even getting these vendors, you know, we, we have them for three to four days and we stretch that just to get what we have. I think that would okay. be a really interesting extension. I just don't, that's another one too, is like, how do you, how would like just out of off the top of your head, like, I don't know how you would even start to build an assessment criteria based on that. Yeah. Besides just like you said, defining like, it's almost an ontology of like, this is kind of what a user would expect. And how do you kind of map into these expectations? Yeah, what, like the way I think about it is like 
say if I were to like consume raw events from like XEDR, right? And then like you have like one event that do you have two different events and both of them hold like a process name. And then I'm wanting to leverage both of those within a detection. One's called like process or image name. The other one's just called process name. Well, it's like if I thought like if like I could be misled and thinking, okay, I know this one event has process name and think, okay, they're all going to have process name. I can leverage that all within my detections. It's like there's almost like a re-standardization that needs to occur with some of the EDR's raw data simply because like it's like as of the current state, it's more like, hey, you can use it in our UI, but out like the maybe the APIs aren't as supported um, as yeah. heavily as your uh, your managed service background showing. Uh, I definitely <laughs> definitely resonate with that problem. And I think that like that's one of the things like we like I love that, you know, like we started with EDR, it kind of grew over time to whatever the market calls this XDR or whatever. But I think like the the philosophy of what we're doing in terms of like defining hard questions and like trying to answer answer those, I think that extends to like a lot of spaces. Like you know, I, mean, I don't we haven't released it yet, but we did do an evaluation of like deception products. And like me personally, I've never touched a deception product. I don't really know that space, but we were able to kind of poke around. And like we've done the same thing previously with like ICS, like completely different beast. Um, it's a lot of like network anomaly detection things like that. But, you know, the, the simple philosophy of like asking a question, being transparent about how you ask that question and showing it, I don't think that's anything that's not kind of applicable to any problem, but it's also not exclusive to MITRE. Like we're just doing yeah. it on our side, but it's something that, you know, if you can kind of scheme up an idea, um, I would say run with it. I think there's there's a lot of merit in kind of the the journey of, you know, exploring those questions. But also, if you're willing to just dump it and for the community to kind of refine on it, that's um, that's cool points for me. Yeah. So one thing, this is kind of the spicy thing, and like, I'm curious if anyone's going to react to this. But like, you mentioned, um, kind of let CTI lead the way. Um, mm -hmm. And so my question to you is, it's hard to like blanket CTI as like what everyone's doing because I feel like different, you know, intelligence teams are doing different things as a whole and in general do you feel like that space is at a standstill when it comes to a lot of attacks and specifically looking only at the procedural level of what those attacks are performing um it's hard to give a very concrete answer to that but i think i agree with the sentiment of the question in that you know they're so, if you just followed, like, especially it depends on what CTI you're talking about too, because it's like, if yep. you're talking about publicly available versus, you know, private and everyone kind of has their own like internal stuff, um, you were just talking about different beasts. And, you know, the nature of intelligence is that it is very biased, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, novelty or visibility or availability, or just honestly, a lot of open source publicly available CTI is going to be marketing. It's going to be, you know, some product vendor, some IR service showing off, like, look how smart and cool we are. Here's the stuff we found. And at the end of the report, here's how we stop it. Like, it's almost like a product pitch and it kind of circles back and, you know, consumes yeah. itself. So that said, um, we kind of bought into the CTI, you know, let threaten forms, let CTI, you know, lead the way philosophy, mostly just to address the prioritization problem. Because I think a lot of the questions we got, at least initially with attack was, where do I start? What do I care about? And that's like a really hard question for people to answer if they just look in a mirror. Because like, honestly, like you could, 
And we have some like things around that space in terms of like, you know, doing a SOC assessment and saying, you know, what data sources are you collecting? Um, what is kind of your crown jewel analysis? We can almost paint, you know, a picture of attack with just those questions. I don't think there's a lot of adoption and implementation of that. So rather we kind of, you know, bought into the philosophy of let's look at what's happening. Let's look at what we know. I know we don't know everything, but let's take, let's take lessons learned from, you know, other campaigns, other incidents, and kind of let that groove what we do. There's still a lot of space in terms of research that is applicable. But the one thing we want to avoid is while there's still low hanging fruit in terms of the known knowns, let's like really iron and hammer those. And then once we've kind of like worked out like all of like the, you know, some understanding of like acceptance of like, you know, it's not perfect, but I think we're, we're done here. Mm -hmm. Now we can start like pushing ahead. And so far up to now, I don't think like, obviously we make a lot of, we made a lot of progress. I don't think we're like on the heels of CTI because every yeah. day we see new reports where it's like, you know, all these new breaches and they you know it, it, that's why, you know, this space expands. It starts with like, we started with just windows or windows and Linux. And now we're like, wow, should we go into cloud? Cause like there's yeah. some really spicy trade craft in terms of that control plane and identity management and all that stuff. And there's a lot of these same questions in that space, Mac OS uh, and, yeah. you know, Android mobile stuff. There's like, I, I get what you're saying, but it's like my perspective would be, we still haven't figured out the basics before we're ready to really take that leap and start touching like kind of that research oriented space. So could it be, could it be that the reason why we haven't progressed is because we're approaching it incorrectly? Oh, absolutely. And so what, like, what do you, what, what would be your take yeah, on? Okay. So, so you and I have talked, like we talked yesterday um, and what we talked about, I think I've talked to Luke and Johnny, but for everybody's awareness, there's this idea called experiential hierarchies, right? And this idea that uh, when you when you think of uh, an object, there's different levels of resolution with which you can think of that object. The the canonical example is uh, an apple, right? An apple is a thing, but it's simultaneously an apple, a fruit, which is a superordinate category, right? So it's like a higher category, or it could be a Granny Smith apple, which is a subordinate category. And like you could actually probably break that down even further, right? But it could it simultaneously exists in multiple places right um when you think of and that that applies to ttps right so a tt uh the first t tactic is a superordinate uh category a technique is a is they call it the basic the i think it's like the basic level of analysis or something like that the basic object right is the technique and then the the procedure is the um is the subordinate category now like necessarily when and this was part of the thread that we kind of mentioned already, but necessarily when you act, you must act in the like in the procedural like level of analysis, right? So like uh and like when we when we read CTI reports, we read what they did, and that might include the command line that they used, for instance, which is that that procedural level. Um, and so that's that's great, and like we have to analyze it from there, and then we have to build it up, right? And so then the question is, it's like, okay, well, what, you know, what is the behavior that they achieved when they ran this procedure, right? Well, okay, they, they created a service for lateral movement. Okay, well, service creation. And, that, and then that falls into the te technique of lateral movement. And there's numerous ways you could do lateral movement and all that kind of stuff. Now, I think like one of the problems is, is that we're playing whack-a-mole at the procedural level instead of, uh, yeah. and maybe this is what you mean by the research aspect, but like rather than saying, okay, like it's great that we know that specific procedure, 
but the chances that the next time that the time that I see that technique, they use the same exact procedure is basically zero, right? Um, it's, it's almost, it's almost not going to happen. Right. And so it doesn't make sense to like, to worry. So like to worry so much about the procedure that you forget about the tactic or the technique, which is like, let's expand it and start to understand how can that manifest and what, what that ends up looking like. And I think there's, um, I think maybe like maybe what ends up like when you think about threat reporting, yeah, there's new threats coming out all the time, but how often is a new technique being discovered? One thing I want to get into Not, later, and I mean, I don't mean okay. to interrupt you, but uh, I want you to continue. But one thing I want to talk about later is what would you define a threat as? Okay, continue. Okay. So not now, but maybe in the future. Yeah. But like, yeah, how often is a like how often does a threat report come out to where there's a completely new technique? Like, not it's not often enough that we only have to do attack releases twice a year, and yeah. I feel like we cover down pretty well. Um, and some of that stuff that's already out, and you just haven't categorized yeah. it yet. Yeah. And like I said, the couple times we did like a spot release after like the the sun solar winds solar gate stuff like we were like okay cool there's a bunch that like we really need to get in so we'll like hop in a little faster but yeah to your point i think that's an interesting question to johnny's early question it's like yes like we're absolutely playing whack-a-mole with procedures and i don't i think it's like a losing effort in a sense because you know i think many people believe that there is an endless abyss of procedures like you said that's there's right. so many different variants and so many different like kind of changes that will never fully get covered in that space but at the same time it's as we work our way up to like thinking about like techniques or tactics and kind of doing like a more broad evaluation, I feel like we'll just circle right back down to procedures because it's like, how do you, how do you evaluate the scope of a tactic without, you know, kind of, you know, thinking about the attack model, getting back down to procedures. So I wish, yeah. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah. So the, the idea is, is that the procedure, like, so threat reporting gives me a procedure, right? And then what I do with that is I synthesize that and say, okay, what's actually happening? And like, maybe not everybody's capable of this, but that's why we have reporting. Like not everybody's capable of observing the procedure in the first place, which is why we share reporting, right? So um, that that idea that like we're better together than we are alone, that that already exists, I think, right? So yeah. um, I get the proceed, like, let's say I get the procedure. I say, okay, what's actually happening here? And then I start, like I build something like that, you know, graph that I that I showed. And now it's like, okay, well, how do we address this thing as opposed to the the individual procedure? Because the the net gain of addressing the procedure is basically zero. The net gain of addressing the graph is actually measurable in some sense, right? Because like you could you could cut off certain pathways and now you could actually measure your percentage of coverage in, in a in a meaningful way, I think. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah the, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a really good take on, you know, if you looked at evaluation, like what, what should be your takeaway is yep. like you said, like looking at a, a procedure and, you know, we actually do variations over time and we even within the same evaluation of the same technique and yep. kind of walking away with like an understanding of like my, now that I've seen 30 vendors do it, my ideal would be X, Y, Z compared to that technique. I think the, the problem that that suffers though is there's always going to be an abstraction game here where, you know, even thinking about like a threat to Johnny's question, like, you know, we're talking about one individual technique. It is similar to the procedure problem. They could very easily just choose to either not do that or do like something one, one hop up or one hop down on the matrix. And you're like, okay, like, cool. So there, there's a, just let me address that real quick. There's a, there's a finite set of techniques that's significantly more finite than the number of procedures. And so the chances that they choose a different technique is significantly smaller 
then the chances that they choose a different exactly. procedure. Exactly. Yeah, the, so the, like you are making progress in some yeah. sense. But it's and not we can work our way up well. to the tactic level and say like, you know, I don't know what this looks like, but like imagine if you were like a sock manager and you could say like lateral movement in our environment, like not zero trust. Sorry, I don't want to be just like a ZTA person, but like lateral movement in our environment is yeah. not impossible, but very, very hard. I think that's yeah. a huge win. I would love to hop on the journey to that future. But yeah, I think I'm yeah. tracking what you're saying. The, re- the reason why I bring it up and like to really solve security, everybody just turn your Windows box into S mode and then you'll be so fine. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, but like the reason why I bring up that conversation is because um, I often see when it comes to the threat intel space in general um, and reports are coming out that it's often like we are waiting and chasing the threat group, the malware, whatever it may be. And like, although detection in my head is always going to be reactive to an extent, unless like there's like some deep research aspect found and then you found like this new like avenue of like variant of this technique and you write a detection for it before it's actually seen in your environment doesn't mean it hasn't happened before. And like, so I guess the reason why that somewhat bugs me to an extent is because everybody cares in my head, cares too much about Cobalt Strike. Like, Beacon, 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 let's detect beacon. And the thing is, like, well, you have to understand beacon is being used to run a specific finite amount, finite amount of techniques, right? And so, like, if we look at it from that perspective, I don't really give a shit about beacon. I don't, I mean, like, sure, like, keep in mind, let me say this, like, I, I said this before, like, I think there is value to procedural level detections. However, I do believe that at, from a defensive standpoint and as a large community, there is a kind of standstill right now and the, the needle's not really being moved. And part of that is because we are waiting for the malware. So like, the, like when it comes to in like groups and things like that, when it comes to malwares and like threat intel um, and like them like Emotet's doing this now and Emotet's doing this now, it's like I think that's valuable to an extent. But be like, OK, like if we see this malware in my environment and I got a detection on three out of like, say, eight things that the certain malware is doing, I can maybe can send some resource to kind of go like hunt for those to like check. It's it's nice to have that relationship. However, yeah, okay. to can to to can like that relationship in correlation is nice. But it's also one of those things where sure to keep the repository, but like if we just document every time that like quote unquote emote is doing something then like we're going to be in a running race in the sense of waiting for them. Also, I don't necessarily believe that every time the same three or four techniques are chained together, that is a specific malware. And the reason why I say that is because I've copy pasted code from Stack Overflow before. I'm sure malware groups do that, right? And so like you could have different malware groups performing the same thing. So it's like that is kind of the issue that I see a lot of the times as well. And there is this overarching, I'll get done with this right here in a moment. There is this overarching idea that I believe is like not explicitly said, but implicitly said by a lot of, a lot of the community. They're like, if Cobalt strikes stopped or harden their license more or like cyber threats would significantly like decrease. I a hundred percent, hundred percent believe that's God. false. And so like, it's like, I think like if, listen, if someone's going to use a C2, they're going to create one. There's also a myth that there's a, there's a hundred C2s out there. Right. And so like someone's going to use something, it doesn't have to be Cobalt Strike. At the end of the day, all those C2s are going to do the same thing. And that is run attacks in an environment. You know what the great thing is though, Mm -hmm. is the people who created Mythic used Cobalt Strike. And so for the most part, it uses the same techniques that Cobalt Strike uses. Because that was their their base. And And so what ends up happening, 
yeah, your point with Emotet is this is completely anecdotal and this is obviously not scientific, but it seems to me that when people get too focused on like the malware name, they tend to uh, get fo too focused on the procedure instead of taking a step back and saying, okay, well, Emotet did this this time. And I know that it did that last time. Um, and so like what what is what's common instead of what's different and how can we start to look at it from that lens through that lens instead of yeah because like what ends up happening is we we start looking at what emotet did literally instead of uh what emotet did from a meta perspective so like i i, I think about like myth mythology all the time and like um carl jung has this idea of the collective unconscious and the the archetypes of story right and so you have like the great mother and the great father and the hero and all that type of stuff and so the hero um like there's this idea that when i tell like a literal story about me going to the store right there may have been some trial or tribulation that's very small that i had to overcome at the store uh to find the thing that my wife asked me to pick up but like that's not that interesting that's not compelling and so what ends up happening is in fiction we tell we take all the stories that ever happened where somebody ran into a trial and tribulation and we we uh come up with like what is the what is the thing that all those stories have in common well like there was some anomaly that occurred in the in the world um there was a dragon that had to be overcome the hero goes out into into the wilderness right into the unknown slays the dragon learns something brings it back and solves the anomaly that's what that's what happens right that's the meta narrative of a of a hero's journey and so what what we what we need to start doing i think is uh understand that what we're looking at is Jared's particular problem that he had when he went to the store and he couldn't find the type of milk that his wife asked him to buy instead of saying what are the things that everybody ha like everybody faces in life and what's the meta narrative that that ties all those together and if we started looking at it from that perspective um i think we would have a much better time trying to figure this this problem out because yeah mythic mythic and cobalt strike are that Oh my God, Johnny, you you broke my brain. This is why like I have a problem with people. <laughs> Every time people... Johnny has a rant, like oh, fifteen man. things line up in Jared's brain, and he has this existential crisis on which ones he can okay. reasonably address in the podcast. Yeah. Well, it's like okay, so when people are like, "Oh, you know, we switched from PowerShell malware to C sharp malware to Go malware," it's like, yeah, but like what they did is they had PowerShell, which was invoke Kerberos, and then they had Kerberos Sharp. And then they had go Kerberos, and it's like it's lit like literally Kerberos. like what Johnny what, jo yeah. what Johnny just said was they literally took the PowerShell code and made and like PowerShell and C Sharp are basically the same thing, and so they just slightly changed the 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 way that the code looks, the syntax, and they made it do the same exact thing. And then they they're like, oh well, you know, for whatever reason, people are now on to C Sharp malware, and so now we're going to do it in Go. The fact that that happens tells us we're approaching detection incorrectly. I agree. Yeah. So because it's the same shit over and over. Thing about CTI is exactly you said it tells a story. And like I think your analogy was spot on in terms of, you know, we hear about Cobalt Strike this, Cobalt Strike that, Emotet this. But the biggest, like you said, and not everyone's gonna act on the information correctly. But I think collectively as an industry, the kind of, you know, the takeaway we can have is this is a problem that a lot of us, exactly like you said, Jared, a lot of us are sharing the exact same problem. So, you know, and people will keep talking about Cobalt Strike, you know. Um, until it's not a problem, until it's not something that's showing up in every single breach and every single report. And, you know, there's two approaches, the true approaches to that, you know, being a reality is like you said, you can either go and say Cobalt Strike is not available. But the other side is, hey, as long as we're still talking about Cobalt Strike, 
you know, it's not going to be everyone, but some people are actually going to start taking, you know, a more scalable and direct approach. Exactly. You said like breaking down, like what makes cobalt strike successful. And, you know, eventually that will maybe get some traction kind of spread. And then eventually it will reach the point where, you know, we're not talking about cobalt strike anymore because maybe that problem has been at least alleviated to the point where it's not the top of our list. Yeah. And, you know, every solution and every reason that's a reality isn't going to be perfect. But that said, the net yield of where we were when we were talking about Cobalt Strike every second to now it's not really top of our radar. There's hopefully something tangible in there that really started to crack it exactly what you're saying. So I think the biggest thing is, like you said, Mm -hmm. we can keep spreading the awareness of the best approach to, you know, solving these problems. And marry that mm-hmm. with, you know, where should we really aim our gun in terms of like, what's the problem that we need to apply this to? And hopefully more and more of that just kind of compounds and snowballs. You yeah, both I think, clarified I th- my point. So the uh, cobalt strike's not the problem. Cobalt strike is what we think is the problem. The problem is the things that cobalt strike does that it does in common with everything else. And I, Golden I think, tickets, process I think, injection. Yeah, sorry. I think part of the issue, no, that's a great point. And it's leading to what exactly what I want to say is, I think it's because we are defining threats incorrectly. And so we're approaching the door incorrectly due to that. So like, I want all three of you to answer you too, Luke, like define a threat for me. If you had to define a threat, define that for me. I'll go first because I think I've, I have a, I've, at least I've thought about it. So I think a a threat is anything that poses risk to, uh, to like your operation. Right. So like, you can't do that. that. Because then you got to define risk, right? Well, okay. Do I mean like here we go, I, man? See, this if is I said I anything more, specific, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. So, I mean, I have like a super philosophical answer about uh, about this, and I don't like I, I in order to do it, I have to talk for a decent amount of time, and you guys are going to shit on me, so I don't know that I want to go. No, hit it, hit us with it, thought leader. Let's hear it. Okay, so going back to Carl Jung. So uh, Carl Jung's archetypes. Uh, this is actually like why I think we do threat hunting incorrectly uh, to some degree. So um, we had a problem with threat hunting where threat hunting came about because somebody noticed that there was a problem with the way that socks operate. And there's this idea that socks over time become stale and don't keep up with the entropy in how attackers approach the problem. Right. So like if you just stay the same, you actually are getting worse relative to the threat, the threat. Um, now, and so we created threat hunting, but just because you've, I, you've observed there is a problem and then you've identified what the problem is, doesn't mean that you have the right solution. And so what we, what we define commonly threat hunting as is like the proactive, which I, I don't even know what the hell proactive means in this context of what you're saying, Johnny, it's like it's still reactive in some sense, yeah. the proactive search for, uh, like bad stuff that's bypassed our detections or our in-place detections. Right. So basically we're trying to bolster our sock in some, in some fashion now, like, but one of the problems is, is that that leads to a metric that gets created where we're looking for badness. So like every time I've ever used the word threat hunting around anybody, they, somebody will say, Oh, did you guys find anything? That's like what they're interested in. But the, the, did you find anything? That's actually a metric that you can't control at all because it's, it's, it might not even be there and that's outside your control. Right. So then the, like, then it's like, okay, well, what should we be doing? And so Carl, like Carl Jung's ideas of the, the archetypes has like tons of influence on the lion King in particular. So the idea is, is that, all stories are built around, all fictional stories at least, are built around archetypes. But The Lion King was specifically built 
with archetypes in mind, right? So like it, it, they, they knew what they were doing when they built it. So for instance, there's two side. there's the great father, right? There's two sides of the, of the great father. There's the wise King, which is Mufasa. And there's the tyrant, which is scar. Right. And so the, like when we talk about, um, the patriarchy, for instance, we're talking about the tyrant side of the great father. Right. But one of the, one of the problems is, is that the wise King is willfully blind, right? So like, uh, the wise King is tr- too trusting. And this goes back to, uh, to Egyptian mythology, actually. So like the, the wise king, the wise king is willfully blind. And so that's why Scar is able to uh, take advantage of Mufasa and ultimately kill him, right? Because the wise king was too trusting of that like kind of familial bond. Um, now, the thing that's interesting about this question that you're talking about, Johnny, is this, and Luke's, are, I've ran this past Luke, so he's just sitting here so bored. But uh, <laughs> when, when Simba's first, bo- like Simba's born and they have the ceremony on Pride Rock, and so they're in this high place, like f- physically high, and then uh, later it flashes forward to another another scene and uh, Simba's with his father. He wakes him up and he's like, hey, I want to go look look at you know the kingdom or whatever. I want to watch the sunrise. And then Mufasa tells Simba, look, Simba, everything that the light touches is our kingdom, right? Well, the light, the light represents the known territory, right? This is what we know. This is, we, we have these conceptual schemas in our head and the light are the things that we've brought into our conceptual schemas, right? So you could think of, the cybersecurity conceptual schema as attack, right? Things that are known are integrated into our understanding of, of the world, which is represented by attack in like at least a word form or in a communal form. Um, and that is our kingdom, right? We conceptually know what's going on there. And then Simba says, what about that shadowy place over there where the elephant graveyard is, right? That's the unknown, right? That's where, that's where things will kill you. That's where you shouldn't go. That's where the hero has to go in order to uncover, uh, uncover and expand knowledge right so like as you're expanding knowledge you have to travel into the shadowy place uh and turn it into a place that's touched by light right and so this this goes in like maybe people don't like lion king this goes into like civilization if you don't like lion king please never listen to this podcast yeah. again because that's yeah like the, an interesting so like uh when i was thinking about this in terms of cybersecurity, i wanted to rewatch lion king but i'm also learning italian cool thing about disney plus for those that don't know is all the movies are translated in like every language and so i watched lion king in italian um, and the, the, you know, the circle of life song it's, uh, in un fiore che fine non ha, which means like in the flower that has no end. So it's not circle of life. It's the flower that has no end, which is, was interesting. Anyway, the, um, so anyway, uh, where was I going with that? Uh, okay. So civilization five, like we're nerds. We, we probably have played video games, right? You have, or like any top down kind of strategy game, you have fog of war, right? Well, like, let's say I'm Athens and I have this little community and I don't go and explore the fog of war and I just stick to what I know. And, you know, I'm kind of slowly building along as I go. The problem is, is that I don't know what's out there behind the fog of war. And it could be the thing that's ultimately going to kill me and my family. Right. Um, and my civilization. And so and and the problem is, is they're growing faster than I'm. They could be growing faster than I'm growing. And I don't know. And so that the idea is, is that the shadowy place or the unknown that is where the things that will kill you, literally and figuratively, all exist in the unknown, right? Because you don't understand it. Um, and, and so, like, the idea is, is that you should go forward and uncover the unknown. That's the hero's journey, right? And then you should bring back that knowledge. And so the idea is, is the, the threat is ultimately the thing that's going to kill you. Um, now, when you start talking, like, when we're talking about cybersecurity, like, hopefully it doesn't actually kill you. Although, you know. It could. Yeah. Yeah, it could, potentially. But like it, it kills kills your ability to do the thing that you want to do, which is which is interesting because I don't think threats are 
100% like malicious hackers that are coming to get you. It's things that you don't understand. That's and even that too, like I love that analogy. It's like thinking to Lion King, like the threat could be on Pride Rock. Like it could be Scar, it could be the hyenas. Yeah. Like it could definitely not That's be the already within like yeah. whatever the domain of everything the light touches. Yeah. And you like, if you think about Scar in the depiction of the Lion King, they actually made him like a little bit more shadowy and like droopy and not trustworthy. So they Extension actually kind of, of the, depict, the depicted darker. the, the yeah. shadow. Yeah. So I'm going to take a little, you know, not as fun of an, an answer there, but, you know, I think very often we measure threats by their outputs. Like, you know, like you said, some type of breach or some type of behaviors. Um, I've always kind of used, you know, in the you know framework model person. Um, so sorry in advance, but, you know, I think of a threat as like, you know, I think a couple of people have documented in this way, you know, capability and intent and a motivation. So like, you know, exactly as you said, like, you know, cobalt strike isn't, you know, you could argue Cobalt Strike isn't inherently a problem. The problem with it is that it puts a capability in the hands of those who have an intent and motivation to do harm. Um, mm -hmm. So that is really kind of the the bigger you know issue here. So it's not necessarily like you said, if you strike Cobalt Strike off the world, they're going to find your Mythic or you know Iron Trinity or pick your favorite um, you know C two framework. They'll find something else. But really, you know, this space, and that's why we can't just expect to throw technology at the issue and kind of hope for a solution, because, you know, those other factors, that intent and that motivation, you know, what are they actually trying to do? What are their goals? And then, like, why are they doing that? Like you said, hackers are people, too. Like, you know, what actually provoked someone, you know, whether it's, you know, nation state back, uh, e-crime, like, you know, putting you know, food on their family's table, like, why are they doing the things they're doing? Um, and, you know, you're not necessarily going to solve those things, but understanding those and really tracking those is going to paint a lot more context around, you know, even the technical side in terms of you thinking like, hey, like, you know, I'm seeing a campaign, I'm seeing activity. If I can really come at it and understand like what's happening here, why it's happening, I can start to, you know, start to forecast exactly as you said, you know, how often are the hyenas and scar are going to try to make a move? Um, why are they doing that? Are there things I can do to alleviate that? Are there costs I can impose to maybe say, hey, like, you know, this Pride Rock's not for you. Uh, go off and find, you know, some other, you know, venture off into the lands of other fruits. Um, so I think, like I said, I think it's a little bit not as interesting, but it's, I think it's, it's, it's kind of hard to conceptualize. And I think that's one of the problems in the entire, like, you know, this industry is that we have a lot of answers and not a lot of, or a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. But at the same time, um, I think it really is advantageous to kind of maybe just like think about the problem, you know, more in that kind of 50,000 foot perspective. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're not going to find, you know, silver bullets and just kind of solutions, yeah. but at least appreciate, you know, all the factors that kind of go into it. Luke, you're up. Hit it, Luke. How can I even formulate an original thought if Jared used all of the words already? Um, oh my gosh! Well, you have to define <laughs> literally every word you have. You have you have to define it until you get down to no words. Enough of kiss. I think no, I've, I was. <laughs> I was gonna throw out that it is because um, I I agree with uh, with Jamie's point that it's not necessarily something unknown it's not necessarily something out of, out of your network and i agree with jared that it's not necessarily something evil it may just be something that you don't want so i would define a threat as uh 
activity occurring in your environment that you don't want. Because, I mean, someone could be just, you know, logging into a bunch of systems with domain admin as a uh, over RDP just to administer some stuff. Is it evil? No. Do you not want it? Yeah. Is it a threat because it exposes your credentials? Yes. Uh, so I would just consider it something that yeah. you don't want happening that's happening. Can you define you? <laughs> I think yep. uh, I think there's like an interesting thing of you may know a like a attack technique in some sense, but you can make the argument that it's also unknown in a completely different sense, right? Like so, yeah. um, like because Luke just said he's like, yeah, like I agree with Jamie in the sense that like it threats could be things that you know, but you I would argue that if it like it's not knows. like you don't actually know it if it's still a threat. Like you may know something about it, but you don't know it in like the, like um, what's the difference? You know, somebody could use a service for, for lateral movement, let's say, but like, how do you distinguish a bad service from a good service? And is it, is it really like a threat, even though someone executed something, but yet, yet you prevented it. Or if like you had your, you detected it in a way that like your remediation. Um, so you're asking, like does it have to manifest basically? yeah so like i no, you know i'm, I'm I like it still is i'm con i'm conflicted because like my thought and definition of like threat in general is always evolving i talked to uh brian donahue about this last week after attack con and he was like he's like the way i think about threat he's like i think of it do you want it on your computer or not if you don't then like you know that's probably a threat and i think that's a really good way to look at it another part of me is like a threat is anything with the explicit intent to cause harm. So like the way I look at that is like Cobalt Strike, Mimikatz in my head aren't a threat. And the reason being is like it's just a repository of code. It's the person behind that controller that has the intent to cause harm. Mm -hmm. And so like because if we were to look at like look at it as anything that could be harmful in your environment, I've heard that definition before. Well, it's like, then you might as well wipe every API from the Windows operating system because, like, every API is typically used within an attack some way, shape, or form. And so... I just have, a like, a, a, a challenge to something you just said because if you hearken back to my RDP thing, mm. my sysadmin does not have an intent to cause harm, but he's logging yeah. into every computer in the network with domain admin over RDP. Yeah. Is that not still a threat? Yep. Again, like, that's... Is it, a, it, is it a threat, Johnny? Well, could you is say it, that is the it, is it really is pivots is over to whoever is collecting those cash credentials? So, like, Precisely. necessarily, like, it's more of a vulnerability than a threat. Yeah, that's that would be my thought as well, because, like, even, like, even though those, like, credentials are exposed, that might be, like, something you don't necessarily want. I don't know the terminology for that, but no one is manifesting, taking that, and, and like, leveraging them for something that is harmful. I'll, I'll accept vulnerability for lack of a better word as, as what that, cause no one's explicitly doing the thing, right? There's just an opportunity for it to happen. Precisely. So. Yeah. And then part I of will allow well, it, Jamie, <laughs> maybe risk. No, I'm, yeah, think, I'm thinking like okay. sysp crap. Yeah. Like risk yeah, is probably yeah. the way they'd say that. And part, part of me as well has the thought process of like, if you have like, you know, to Jared's point, and I guess really everybody's point here is if like a threat could be something, um, is, typically something like you don't know. So like, is it really a threat if you know it completely? 
And so like, say if we take like Jared's abstraction of like service creation um, and like you have a detection built for every input there. Mm. Right. And like, it's, you have a very big depth of coverage when it comes to that in my head, in your environment, service creation, from what you understand about service creation is no longer a threat to your environment because you've done your due diligence. And if something like that were to happen, you would detect it. Uh. You'd be able to remediate in a fast manner. Now, what about those, you know, you know, shit. What about those techniques that like, you're like, okay, well, I know X amount this now. And so now it's not a threat, but I just yep. like, there could be something I don't know else about so this. My okay, counter so question to that would be exactly like your API comment is, I, I'm sure if we sat down and mapped out the threats, risk, vulnerabilities, whatever you want to call them, like eventually, how do we avoid the conclusion that we should just turn computers off? Oh, because there's, the there's a Jared would love us. that. That's what he did whenever he was growing up. The, I think, okay, so uh, <laughs> yeah, all these, all these are good. I think uh, I, I'm, pro I, I'm making shit up right now. So I'm just proposing things. I'm curious what you guys think. So there's this idea that um, we can know, we know something, but it could still hurt us. Right. But the, like my proposal was that we don't really know it. Right. And so like the, the idea is, is that like, um, so Scar was in the land of the light, right? But then he did something that Mufasa didn't expect him to do. That's an anomaly of behavior, right? And so anomalies represent gaps in your cognitive schema. You're like the way that you view the world. If an anomaly, like we, we never know, like we can't even perceive reality, you could technically say, right? And so what ends up happening is we build these schemas which allow us to categorize things. And then we use those categories to predict how things are going to work. Um, which allows us to then like think about the best way forward in certain certain uh, situations, right? And so what ends up happening is like you think that you understand how a computer works, and then you try to do something, and the thing that you expected to happen doesn't happen, or something you mm -hmm. didn't expect to happen happens. That means that you your cognitive schema isn't refined enough to actually make the prediction that you expected to make. Which means that in some sense you know it, right? But you don't know it enough for the thing that you wanted to do with it. Yeah. Right. And so like you're you can never know it perfectly, but you you get to where you align your knowledge with your function. Right. And that's yeah. the important piece. And so and the it, thing was, is that in some sense, Mufasa knew Scar, but he didn't know him in a completely different sense, which means that he's still unknown, I guess, in my. Yeah. And, and to that point, too, like this goes back to a conversation Jerry and I had the other day. Um, but like this will probably have to go for another episode because uh, <laughs> I think this is probably going to open up another door. Oh, boy. Um, but like it, it's like about like the pyramid of pain right um and oh man yeah and so like you know we have our own thoughts about the pyramid of pain the question is like that I, we were talking i was like kind of mentioning the other day it was like was david bianco wrong when he came out with the pyramid of pain no not necessarily but like um you know knowledge has evolved since then but the idea hasn't evolved so now in my thought process maybe the pyramid of pain is wrong well, now yeah, and well, so like I think that applies to a lot of different things. Once I get started, sorry, it's like okay. that applies to a lot of different things. It's like we have these, we we research and understand this topic um, to a certain threshold, and we're not wrong about that. But maybe the topic, something has been uncovered or it has been evolved. My knowledge has to evolve with that, and if I stay stagnant in that um, and not evolve with that, uh, like um, whatever um, like technology may be then I am starting to go on the, the side of the fence where I'm like, my knowledge is incorrect about that topic. I think, I think uh, to that point, 
in a meta sense, David Bianco is not wrong. There are yeah. better ways to approach detection than than other ways. In the yeah. literal sense of how he organizes the the pyramid with like I, uh, hashes at the bottom and IPs above that, I don't know that I don't know that he's correct because I think of um, I I don't know that it's obvious that IP like IPs or domain names are actually uh, harder for an attacker to change than uh, than a than a hash, right? And so I think of like uh, graphing, right? So like one of the things I think I talked with you about yesterday, Jamie, was this idea that uh, when you make a graph, uh, you don't you 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 could look at it as the number of hops to your destination, and like this is like the shortest path. This is the Bloodhound thing, or this is Google Maps, right? So it's like what is the shortest distance? There's a, an infinite number of ways that I could get from point A to point B. What's the shortest distance? Um, but what Google Maps does that they add to that is just because something's physically shorter doesn't mean that it's faster, right? Yeah. And so like you may you may choose to take the road the freeway instead of the the roads because there's stoplights on the on the road and the freeway doesn't have stoplights. And so I would say that the cost of cha like changing a hash and the cost of changing an IP or a, or a uh, domain name or even a command line is basically the same. And so that's where I think that that I think that in a literal sense, the pyramid of pain maybe isn't isn't that great at, at the bottom levels, especially. And then at the top levels, it becomes very abstract and like not particularly instructive. But like in a from a like the more abstract sense, I think the meta sense, I think the idea is is good. I yeah. think I tend to agree with both takes. My interpretation has always been, you know, how often are TTB based like detections really just an accumulation of the lower levels of the pyramid where it's like, they're probably a bunch of strings and, you know, static indicators that um, we wouldn't necessarily, you know, preach that we should use. And really, like you said, but in the same thing with the graph is, Hey, if I combine those in a certain way, I'm eventually, like you said, what is the target of this thing doing? So I, I always kind of interpret it as a kind of like a process. Like you said, it's a guide of mm -hmm. how do I know, when, when can I feel confident that this is good? So it's like, okay, if I stop here, like, uh, not really great. And like you said, those layers of the pyramid may change, but really, like you said, it's like, it's like, you know, looking at a bunch of procedures and a bunch of very like, you know, kind of Legos, I need to keep building until like, I feel I've kind of reached like, you know, at a, you know, whether you're, you know, technique or, you know, tactic level, I've kind of reached my level of like, okay, like, I think this, I understand the scope of what this does and what this doesn't do. Yeah. Versus just kind of playing whack-a-mole with, you know, some of the, the, the building blocks. Yeah. I Like, okay, so we're running up on time, but I'm happy to keep going for another 30 minutes if you guys are. I'm on the West Coast, so I'm, like, early. I don't, I don't know. I, got I, have, I have tickets to a comedian. I got to run, like, right when we're done. Oh, uh, my gosh. Can you leave it running? Well, why don't we just do a part two? Okay. I mean, I'm so, yeah, that's what I was pitching to Johnny, and, and it's, it's up to Jamie if he accepts, but... Uh, <laughs> Put them on the spot We're, live on the podcast because like one thing yeah. that i want to ask is what is what is a ttp detection like that's a whole that's i mean oh, that's yeah, a whole that's, episode yeah. itself yeah that's yeah, where i want to go right now yeah 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 because we're we're three episodes deep in recordings right now so this one won't even come out for another six weeks so we have plenty of time to drop a get a part two recorded before this one well uh, one should one should be coming out in uh like Monday. three days yeah okay yeah so really four weeks, I guess. Four weeks, you're right. Okay, Jared. Define weeks. <laughs> it's like, I mean, yeah, it's all based on the rotation of the Earth, isn't it? What's the Earth? Okay, let's yeah. stop. Yeah. Here Is go. it flat? <laughs> but you're, yeah, you're I'm, starting I'm to think correctly, like... Luke, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm proud of you. 
Cool. I guess um I guess is this a pretty decent stopping point, I guess, for this episode? And then Jamie, I know Jared's like, well, like, I, like yeah, well, if we don't stop here, we can't we have three minutes left in an hour and a half. There's no way we could have yeah. any and I have like conversation about the types talk of, about. Yeah. yeah, there's no way we could talk about any of the topics that we want to talk about in three minutes. And I do like the cliffhanger. Um that's a really it's gonna I'm gonna lose some sleep over that one. Uh, is this, part of, the, is this really actually part of the conversation? Take. Is this Hell yeah, it is. okay? Yeah, I don't believe get... in censoring anything from our. our uh, sorry viewers, to whoever's man. at this point listening to us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. Awesome. Right. I guess with that, um, I obviously want to thank you, Jamie, for joining us. Um, we're excited for part two again. If you're game, um, this has been a really insightful for me. Um, I hope, hopefully, all the listeners as well. So, um, thanks for your time and your knowledge as well. Yeah, dude. Yeah, thanks Appreciate for having you. me. This was, this was a blast. Let's do it again. Cool. I mean, this will also be that note will be a lot funnier if we don't do it again. And it's like this like full build up. Yeah. <laughs> we wait, we wait a year to do it. And then everybody's like, <laughs> oh, man. yeah, I did that with a blog post. I released one in uh, 2020 before the, the pandemic and labeled it through the looking glass. Part one, part two is not <laughs> and, ever been released. No, still in the <laughs> did, he, did he even tweet and say, Hey guys, I've been super busy, but I promise to get you a part two coming soon. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I wrote it, and now I'm just scared to release. It. Well, like one of the problems with that type of stuff is like if you, if you wait so long, it's like well now I've completely changed how I look at the problem, and so yeah. like it doesn't even freaking make sense anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that's it, okay. I guess. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Detection Challenging Paradigms. If you want to keep up with us, you can do so on Twitter at DCP the Podcast or on our website, dcppodcast.com, where you'll find links to all previous episodes and their episode guides, as well as to our store, where 100% of our proceeds benefit charity. Uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next one.